Would you turn to Mark 13? And today we'll be looking at verse 14. We are going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, and uh, we have come to Mark 13, and sometimes in Mark 13 we've even gone even slower, and we have uh, uh, continued to go through the Gospel of Mark in 13 almost word by word. So Mark 13 verse 14. And to come to this point um, in the uh, Gospel of Mark, here we come to the Olivet Discourse. And what triggered the Olivet Discourse is that Jesus' disciples asked uh, such a profound question. And the question is about the sign of the end of the age. And when Jesus began to answer the question, he skipped over an entire church age. He began to tell them about the cataclysmic events that will take part in the last seven years before his return, physical return to reign on earth. Now, what is, what is the purpose of this seven-year period? Why does it exist in God's plan where does it fit? Why does it fit into God's redemptive history? I think today is a great opportunity to, um, that for all of us to uh, consider answering these questions and to see and understand the purpose of this tribulation period in the context of um, God's redemptive story. That's what I want to do for the introduction of today's message. Um, how um, this Seven-year period fits into God's redemptive history. Well, about two and a half thousand years before Christ, God chose the nation of Israel to be His holy nation. He handpicked them from all among the all the nations of the world to be His special people. We know that He loved them unconditionally. He loved them freely. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says this, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. Now, why did God choose Israel to be his special people? Why? Is it because they were so lovable? Perhaps because they were big or rich? And so God uh, thought, wow, I could use this nation to advance my kingdom. And so they were considered worthy for God to love them and to choose them. No, Yahweh tells us in verse 7, he says, Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8, but because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. So God did not choose the people of Israel for anything in and of themselves. No, it was just purely because of his unconditional love that he had towards them that he chose them. And God protected them from harm's way. He preserved them. And he gave them amazing promises. And in God swore an oath by himself that he will fulfill all of the promises that he gave to Israel. Meaning, these promises were written in stone. You can put these promises in the bag. They're guaranteed 
Israel will be the recipients of God's physical blessings. They will be above all nations. They will have a land full of milk and honey. They will enjoy peace with all nations of the world. And the people of the world will look up to them. It's so far off what we see in, in real life, right? It is so different from what we see today. You just need to just have a look at the news and what is going on. They're going to have peace with the people around them. What's going on? Well, God gave them a condition. He commissioned Israel to be the light to the world. So through Israel's devotion to God and their proclamation of his way of salvation, it is when Israel is found faithful that will she ever be able to enjoy God's blessings. But what a tragedy. What a tragedy. Though God has been faithful to them, and though he favored them, and they were the nearest to God's heart, Israel continued to betray God. They sold them out for dead gods of the neighboring um, nations. And the Bible describes the moral corruption of these people of Israel with the worst kind of illustrations imaginable. They are called harlots. Why? They prostituted themselves with foreign gods. They're, go- they're called stiff-necked because they did not trust God. The Bible tells us that they're even more dumber than, than an ox, more stupid than a donkey. They just don't get it. They don't get what? They don't get that there is nothing in the world that satisfies the heart of a, of a man than a living God. He is the fountain of living waters that constantly nourishes our souls. They don't appreciate the priceless treasure there is in God, that he is a great, the pearl of great price, that he is a hidden treasure. And when this God wrapped himself in flesh and came down to live among us, to save us from sin and death, what did they do? They hated him. Not only did they hate him, they crucified the Lord of glory. With cold blood, they murdered the Prince of Life. And this was the worst kind of rejection ever. To have towards God. And for centuries, God waited patiently for them to repent. But God's patience ran out. It has come to an end. They neither devoted themselves to God, nor did they fulfill their commission to be light to the world. And so what did God do? God moved his attention from Israel. He lifted up his hand of protection from them, and he shifted his focus to the Gentiles. Now it is no longer Israel age, it's the church age. Where God would interact directly with the Gentiles apart from the the people of Israel. The church now is to be commissioned to to be the light to the world instead of Israel. And the church age is the period 
that began at Pentecost and it will end at the rapture when God will snatch his bride, the church, out of this world to be with him forever. John 14 verse 3, Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And this promise that Jesus said will be fulfilled at the time when the church will be raptured. Where Jesus is, we will be with him. Now what about Israel? Will God reject her whom he chosen forever? I mean, we just said that God's love is unconditional. God set his unconditional love upon Israel. Has God's unconditional love become conditional? Are God's promises irrevocable, reversible? God forbid. Oh, the, the faithfulness of our God. God's promises are irrevocable. God promised and he will fulfill all his promises that he made to Israel. They will possess the land that God gave them. They will be esteemed above all other nations. They will once again be under God's favor. God's favor will be upon them. Why? Because God who promised them these promises is a faithful God. But wait wait a second. Don't I still have to be devoted to God? Don't I have to be a light to the world so God would bless them? Absolutely. But just how? How will that happen? And when will God do that? I mean, they're still till today arrogant as they have always been. They're still stiff-necked till this present day. How in the world are they going to be devoted to God and be a light to the world so they would receive all of God's promises to them? This is God's primary purpose of this seven-year tribulation period. That's exactly what we've been studying for the last several weeks. This is the purpose of this tribulation period. In Jeremiah chapter 30, God directed a prophecy exclusively to Israel. He spoke to Israel about the end times. And he said to them this in verse 5. For thus says Yahweh. Now he's speaking to Israel about the end times. And he says to, to them, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Can a male give birth? Absolutely not. It's absurd that a male would give birth. Then Yahweh continues and he says, Well, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in child's birth? And why have all faces turned pale? Why? Verse 7, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is a time of Jacob's distress. It's not the church's distress. It's not the church age we're talking about here. The church by this time is raptured. It is Jacob's distress. It is Israel's age. 
Israel will be reinstated and it will be the focus of God's attention at that time. Then he finishes off in verse 7. He says, "And he, but he will be saved from it. The tribulation period is intended primarily for God to crush the stubbornness of the Jewish nation. God during this period will level their pride to the ground so they would repent and devote themselves to God and be a light to the world. God will ensure that this will happen. From the first seal that he will open to the very last bowl he will pour down, God will administer the destruction during this period. Why? So Israel will humble herself and through her and namely the 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from every tribe, through these Messianic Jews, what she failed to do for centuries, she will accomplish in short seven years under severe persecution. She will proclaim the gospel to all the nations and she will be a light to the world. And then at the, se- the end of the seven-year period, and as the birth pangs intensify all the more, the rest of the nation of Israel will cry out to Jesus to save them, and he will burst into the scene, he will save them, and only then all that God promised to Israel will be fulfilled. And this is the overview of how this seven-year period will fit into God's redemptive plan. This is the primary purpose of the seven-year period before Jesus' return. It is to humble Israel, to give her opportunity to be the light to the world. There's great truth we can get out of this, brothers and sisters. Be comforted. Our God is indeed a faithful God. He will fulfill all of His promises, not just to Israel, but to us, the church. God is faithful. This is more to do with God than even Israel herself. It is about the faithfulness of God. He will have to show himself that he is a faithful God. And this brings us to the verse, verse 14. Uh, we won't be able to cover the entire verse even. We're just going to cover this, just the first part of it. And it says there, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, Let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Well, so far we've looked at six signs preceding the end of the age. Please note, Jesus did not give exact time, but signs. Why? Because every believer ought to live with a sense of urgency that Jesus would come any moment and would take us home. So he gave signs, not time. Another another thing that we need to pay attention to, these are not signs preceding the destruction of of the temple at the 70 AD. No. Nowhere in the Olivet Discourse is Jesus speaking about what would happen um, just before the destruction of the temple. These are clearly signs preceding the end of the age. We've been going through this and we looked at that, that this truth, this reality is asserted by the Old Testament along with the New Testament as well as the question that the disciples asked. And Mark here gives us six signs up to this point. 
Let me go through these signs very quickly uh, with you. The first sign is the rise of the Antichrist and the deception that will take the world by, by a storm. That's the first sign. The second, wars and rumors of wars. Third sign, earthquakes in various places. Fourth, famines. Fifth, worldwide persecution that will be unleashed. A severe persecution that will have no equal in anguish. Six, and the last one that we looked at last time, that through all these calamities, the gospel will be proclaimed to all the nations. These calamities will come as a birth pangs, like a woman in labor. You know, where you, you have the first little bit of pain, and then there is um, time to breathe, then more pain, yet shorter time to breathe, and more pain, and even shorter time, and the labor pain will continue to increase, it will intensify, and it will be more frequent. And we've been looking at Revelation from chapter 6 to verse 19, and it gives us those events in even greater detail. There will be seven seals followed by seven trumpets followed by seven bowls. And the seals will take years to complete, the trumpets months, and then you have the bowls weeks to complete. Now some people mistakenly think that there is a repetition of the exact same events. That's like a, like a husband whose wife is experiencing uh, a sequence of labor pain and then he comes to her and he asks her, well, why do you keep on agonizing over the exact same pain? <laughs> I mean, yes, it's the same kind of pain, but it's a different instance altogether. It's a different time. Yes, it is the same kind of events that will take place at the end times, but they will continually to increase and they will be more intense, more severe, more anguish. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, now please pay attention to this, the inspired word of God gives a clear direct command. We don't want to miss this command. Let the reader understand. This word, understand, is an imperative. And it means you've got to get, you've got to get to grips with it. You've got to study it. Let the reader understand, meaning you've got to drink it in. You've got to think through what this means. When you see the abomination of desolation, it means you've got to wrestle with the word of God. It's a command. You've got to sweat over it. Let the whom? The reader understand. Who is the reader? We are reading this, aren't we? We are the readers. We are the ones who got to understand this abomination of desolation, what it means. Brothers, this is have we come here today. To worship the Lord God? Have we not come today to be edified? Then we must spend the remainder of today obeying this imperative command. We've got to put our students' caps on and we've got to diligently study what these words mean. Right? What is this abomination of desolation? Who's going to bring it about? How will it come to pass? How long will it last for? We've got to study it. 
That's how we're going to be edified today when we understand what this abomination of desolation means. Now, I'm going to simplify it for you. All right, I'm going to give to you in three steps. We're going to look at the clarification, the criminal, and the crime. We want to understand what it means as a clarification. We want to see the the criminal behind the scene. Who is it that is instigating it? And we want to look at the crime. What is this crime that is committed that is called abomination of desolation? If God commands us to understand something, brothers and sisters, then we must leave no stone unturned until we have a good grasp of it all. Amen? Well, we start with the first, the clarification. What does it really mean, abomination of desolation? Well, we start with verse 14 again, and we read here, it says, when you see the abomination of desolation. It speaks of time. Now, I just want to tell you from the start, this abomination of desolation, when we read the book of Revelation, when we read the the book of Daniels, we find that this will be smack dab in the middle of the seven-year period. There will be three and a half years of tribulation before it, and there will be three and a half years after it. The first three and a half years prior is called tribulation. The three and a half years after it is called great tribulation. Then it says, when you see, it will be observable. It will be noticeable. All other signs that are given thus far are very hard to pin down as when they will begin, right? I mean, in this church age, we, we experience earthquakes, we experience wars and rumors of wars and famines and so on. All right? So it's very hard to pin when this will take place. But the abomination of desolation, you must be blind not to notice it. Why? Because it says, when you what? See. You will be able to see it. Now, see what? Abomination. What does this word mean? Abomination. This speaks of something that is totally defiling. This word abomination means utterly repulsive. It is so detestable, so loathsome to the highest degree that it would arouse wrath, fury, abomination, something abominable, abhorrent, because it pollutes a sacred place. Many times if we look at the Old Testament, you find that this word, whenever it's referenced, it's referenced uh, in context of idolatry, pagan worship. Basically breaking of the first two commandments. And we know that there is nothing more abominable, nothing is more vile than to reject the worship of God for the worship of idols. That's abomination. What about desolation? Second word here. Well, desolation is simple. It means something that is desolate. It speaks of a wasteland that is uninhabited. It's a place that is empty of people like wilderness. So if you put these two words together, abomination of desolation, it would mean that there is abomination, something that is so abhorrent that will cause desolation. You see, the abomination here is the reason, desolation is the result. First, it's the cause, and the second is the effect. So in other words, it's a, it's a crime that is so heinous, so immoral, 
there will result people fleeing away and will empty out the place. Now, what is this place in context? Let me give it to you very quickly. There's no time to actually study it at the moment. It's basically the temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, let's continue. There's something there is interesting that I want to, I want you to have a look at. That verb standing. It's in the masculine. Um, in, in English, we don't normally attach a gender specific to a verb. You know, when you say the word run, is it he, is it she that runs? Well, we don't know. But in ancient Greek language, as well as most other languages, you, you, you tend to have the gender attached to the verb. And the word standing here is masculine. In other words, just make it simple for you, literally it would be reading, he is standing, not it standing, he it tells us something about this abomination and it is not just an it, it is a he. A person is standing. Who is this person who's called abomination? Well, that brings us to the second point, the criminal. The criminal. And I'll tell you from the very start, this is none other than the Antichrist. Paul called him man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. John called him the beast. And Jesus here calls him the abomination that will cause desolation. How do we know that? How do we know that? I'm glad you asked. Well, in a parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 24 verse 15, it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, then Matthew adds something new that the Gospel of Mark does not have. It says, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. In other words, to know more about who this person is, we've got to go back to the book of Daniel to find out. We've got to go back to the past so that we would know what happens in the future. Daniel mentioned this term, abomination of desolation three times. Uh, each time you would look at it from a different angle. We'll only look at just one, only one reference. So please turn to Daniel chapter 9. And in verse 24. Now stay with me because we're going to talk about a little bit of maths here. Not major, doesn't require... Uh, a, a lot of brain power, but you do need to pay attention to this. And remember, we've got to understand it. We are obeying God as we are looking into the text today, right? Our way, for me, by the way, to, 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 um, m- my responsibility towards you this morning is to help you to understand it. Why? Because to help you to understand it, it is for you to obey it. And therefore, I'm giving the application here. How it applies to your life, You're going to take it home and do that on your own, all right? Just for today. So pay attention. Now, in Daniel 9, verse 24, Gabriel Gabriel is the angel, and he was sent to Daniel. And in verse 24, just to let you know what he says, he's telling Daniel basically that there are 70 weeks. These weeks are weeks of years. Um, If you look at the... Um, 
uh, reference, perhaps at the bottom of your uh, Bible, you'll find it's units of seven. It's not necessarily weeks as weeks of days, seven days. These are weeks of years. And he says that these weeks for whom? For your people. Who's Daniel's people? It's Israel. All right. So it's, they have 70 weeks of years, meaning if you do the sum, it's 490 years. And these 490 years left for all the promises of Israel to come to pass. Well, that's great. That's great. We've got 490 years for Israel's promises to begin to be fulfilled. Well, when is that going to happen? Well, if we know when the 70 weeks will begin, we'll know when it will end. And once we know when it will end, we will know the point in time in history where the Israelites and their promises will begin to be fulfilled. So now in verse 25, it says this. So you are to know and discern that from... You've got the from, you've got the starting point, the issuing of decree, of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. Now, 70 plus 62, it's simple. It means it's 69 weeks, right? 69 weeks. So in other words, from the time a decree that is going to be Come out, well, it's already done in the past at the time of Daniel, by the way, Jerusalem was rubble, or I was just, um, it, 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 it just, it's just gone. Um, Nebuchadnezzar came and he brought it to the ground and it's now rubble. So here, Gabriel is saying to Daniel, from the time a decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem until the first coming of Jesus Christ, there will be how many weeks? 69. 69 weeks. Seven weeks and 62 weeks are 69 weeks. 69. You with me? Have I lost you? 69 weeks, all right? Nod your head. <laughs> okay. Some are going in a circle. All right, fine. All right. So, you've, so how many weeks of years do we have left? One. All right. So why? We started with 70 simple maths. We started with 70. Now we've already spent 69 weeks. How many weeks left? One week. One week left. Now, why is this one week left separate from the others? Why? You see, 69 weeks have already gone. We already spent them. And after which Jesus was killed. So 70, 69 weeks, Jesus was killed. Then God pressed the red button. He paused. Israel's week. We now live in this gap between the 69th week and that very last week. And it's called the church age. And God reserved this last week to be the seven-year period of the end times. This seven-year period has nothing to do with the church. It belongs to the people of Daniel, Israel. The church age now will come to an end. And then, let's have a look at verse 27. Please read verse 27. 
and he, that's the Antichrist. It's referring back to verse 26, the prince who is to come. That's in verse 26, the Antichrist. Look at verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for how long? For one week. So at the start of the seven-year period, the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel. We, we looked at that. If you recall, um, the message about um, the wars and rumors of wars, Israel at the beginning of the seven-year period, um, they will feel the heat of hatred from every side. And they will feel vulnerable. And in the meanwhile, what's going on? The Antichrist is increasing his political power. And he's now leading European nations. And he will present himself to the world as though he's the good guy. And Israel will buy that in. They will buy into this lie. They will be deceived. And they will be pressured to make a treaty with this Antichrist. And what will this Antichrist do? Uh, go back to the sermon and you'll know he will crush their enemies. And once he will defeat them, what's he going to do? Continuing on in his verse, but in the middle of the week. Right in the middle of this seven-year period, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Halfway through this seven-year treaty, the Antichrist will show his true colors. And he will break the covenant with Israel. How is he going to break the covenant? Here it tells you. He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Again, this presupposes that the temple will be rebuilt. And the offering of sacrifices will resume. And now the Antichrist will abolish the daily sacrifices and then... Now, that's the bit about the abomination of desolation. It says here, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Basically, what this means is that the one who will bring about the abomination is the Antichrist. He will desecrate this holy place, meaning the temple. He will defile the temple by committing the crime of the abomination. And it will be so terrible that it will deter the Israelites from coming near the temple. Hence the word desolation. But what is this abomination that he will commit? What crime will he commit that is so heinous, so atrocious, that so much that he would be labeled abomination, so much that the Israelites will flee from his place? What is this crime? Well, we'll come to the third point, the crime. So we looked at the clarification. We looked at the criminal. That's the Antichrist. Now we look. We want to see the crime. Now for this but I please ask you to turn to 2 Thessalonians 3. That's the last passage that we're going to turn to this morning. Now, I understand that we looked at it before, uh, but we'll just very quickly look at it today. Again, one more time. Remember the believers in the church of Thessalonica that were misinformed and they thought that they were going through the seven tribulation period, seven years, and uh, they were panicking and they were deeply troubled. So Paul here is comforting them and he's saying in verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. 
the son of destruction. Who's this? The Antichrist. And what is the abomination that he's going to commit? It tells you now in verse 4. Now pay attention. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He won't just set up an idol in a temple. No. He will reinstitute the worship of emperors. And he's going to set himself up as the God above all gods to be worshipped by all mankind. So all the people in the world will be deceived. They will bow before him as though he's divine. And in the Gospel of Mark, where we looked at that verse, chapter 13, verse 14, it says, standing where it should not be. Standing. Implies that this crime that he's going to commit, when he, the Antichrist, will install himself as divine, it won't be just momentary thing. It will be a period of time. Standing. How long? I'm not going to belabor this point. You can look at it in Daniel 12 verse 11 on your own time. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Meaning, like we said earlier, the Antichrist will place himself in a temple as God for three and a half years and after which there will be some time, 30 days, for God to purge the nations and, and uh, have the, the, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and will bring out judgment upon them. And during this three and a half period, three and a half years period, the wrath of God will be poured down on earth. And as we know that finally, at the end of these three and a half years, once and for all, Christ will wipe out the Antichrist and all his followers to the eternal fiery hell. Hell with just the breath of his mouth. Just to wrap it up, what does it, what does it mean now? That verse, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Well, what, what do we understand what this means? Well, the criminal and the crime is one. It's the Antichrist. Three and a half years, the Antichrist will institute himself, establish himself as God, where? In the temple of God that will be rebuilt. Now, now that we have obeyed this command of God, and we understood what we read. How, how do we apply it in our lives? Well, I've got a couple of ideas of how we can apply this in our lives. Um, first, we want to see the sovereignty of God in this. It's amazing how God gives the Antichrist the advantage. Almost, almost. Absolute complete freedom to do as he pleases with the world. You want to deceive them? Deceive them. You want to have signs and wonders in order to uh, lure people to worship you? Absolutely. Go ahead. 
Uh, you want them to be completely and utterly depraved? The fact that they love sin, they love the pleasure of sin and that, so that they would worship you? Go ahead, you've got that. You want time, three and a half years? You've got that. You've got everything. You want to persecute my people? Go ahead and persecute my people. And yet, and at the end of the seven-year periods, and even though the beast, Satan, the false prophet, and the whole world will be so drawn into darkness, yet God will still fulfill his promise and Israel will be saved. All of Israel at that time will be saved. And as we looked at last week, even the gospel will be preached to the four corners of the earth. Massive revival. Countless of number of people yet will come to saving faith. How sovereign is our God who sits on his throne. He reigns even during this time. If God just did not let this Antichrist loose, if he did not restrain him, and uh, sorry, if, if, yeah, if God uh, still kept him in that full leash and put absolute control over him, and, yet, and then you have the Israelites saved, there is glory to be seen. There is a way, there is a thing where we can say, well, we still praise you, God. But how glorious is God? How sovereign is he that when he lets this Antichrist loose, Satan and all demons to run around like maniacs, deceiving the world, persecuting Christians, and yet saves all of Israel, plus so many Gentiles that will come through the proclamation of the gospel during that time. How sovereign is our God? How powerful is he? We must, stay, we must stay comfort in this and we must praise him in this. Another thing that we need to um, see in this that God is a jealous God. Our God is a jealous God. The Bible says he's a consuming fire. Who gave this label to the Antichrist? Abomination, abominable, so defiled, so vile. Who gave him this label? It is Jesus Christ himself. Well, what does that mean? When God sees worship is compromised, when worship is compromised, when he sees something other than himself occupying his temple that he loves dearly, he looks at it and he says, it's abominable. It's defiling, it's ugly, it's heinous. And then God becomes a consuming fire. Now we, we don't live in the Israel's age. We live in the church's age. And in this era, the temple of God is this body. It's our body. Our bodies are the temple of God, the Bible says. And the question that I want to bring to your attention today, are we keeping this temple in this era, in this age, are we keeping this temple pure? Are we keeping it holy, undefiled? 
Is your temple dedicated to God? Or has it become an abomination of desolation? Has a false god creeped into your te- that temple, your body, our bodies, and took the place of the Almighty God? Our God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. And that body of yours, this body of mine, is purchased with his precious blood, the Bible says. And so though this verse directly applies to the Antichrist because he placed himself to be in the temple of God to be worshipped instead of God. Yet brothers and sisters, let us not follow this path of sin and allow our temples to be occupied with things that are not godly. Let me one more time bring to you the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a beautiful question, and then I will give you the answer. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death. To my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. We must never turn Jesus' temple that he purchased with his blood into a place that is desecrated, into an abomination of desolation. Brothers and sisters, if there is any word that I bring to you this morning, any application, I would ask you, I urge, urgently ask you, plead with you, brothers and sisters, to ensure that your body is the temple of God, dedicated to God and to God alone. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we come before you this morning, and I pray that we all would, would hate this Antichrist's work and what he um, will do to your temple, God, in these days. We pray that we may not follow his shadow, that we would dedicate our temple totally, completely, and until Christ comes back to him who alone owns this temple, owns this body, who died and rose again to purchase this temple. Lord, may our bodies and souls be exclusively dedicated to your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.